Hello and welcome to Recovery 360, the podcast dedicated to exploring the pathways to treatment and recovery brought to you by the Recovery Centers of America. I'm Lorraine Ballard-Morrill, Director of News and Community Affairs for iHeartMedia Philadelphia, and I am joined by Tony Luke Jr. Tony, tell us about yourself. Hi. In 2017, uh, I lost my son to an overdose, and it literally changed my life. I was in the food business at cheesesteak shops called Tony Luke's. I've been a musician since I was a kid, would wrote for many other artists in the 80s. And then I concentrated on the music using the gift that I was given to bring hope and to try to relate to other people that have suffered losses and that have with any kind of a loved one you know, whether it was a child or a spouse or suicide. And that's kind of the mission and the podcast. We wanted it to be real about talking to people about real life things. And we're hoping to bring not a clinical perspective to what everyone is dealing with mental health and trauma, but a real, if I'm sitting in your house and we're talking and we're just talking to each other and talking about each other's pain and how we got through it. Well, today we are joined by Dr. Pete Vernig, who serves as Vice President of Mental Health Services at Recovery Centers of America. And we are thrilled to welcome renowned singer and songwriter Melissa Etheridge. Beyond her multiple Grammy-winning musical career, Melissa brings a unique perspective to the conversation about recovery and sobriety through her music and public platform. Melissa Etheridge's dedication to raising awareness about substance use disorder, reducing stigma, and promoting access to treatment and support services exemplifies her commitment to using her voice for positive change. Thank you so much for joining us here, Melissa. And Tony's got the first question. Go, Tony. Melissa, you you lost your son to substance use disorder. And if it would be okay, would you be able to share some of the cherished memories or qualities about your son that you'd like the world to remember him by? And how has your son's passing influenced your perspective on addiction and on mental health itself? Oh, well, my son was 21 when he overdosed. He he was uh, he was a Scorpio. He was very fiery and um, filled with a lot of desire. And a lot of times his desire sort of passed up his ability in, in some things. He kind of would, would try to do too much and he'd get frustrated. So a lot of his life was a little frustrating. But boy, he loved being outdoors. He was a big outdoors guy, mountain bike and snowboarding. And that's where he he got um, he, he was a very, very good snowboarder. And he was doing a jump and he broke his ankle. And that's where the the painkiller started. Snowboarding was one of his his favorite, favorite things to do. And um, unfortunately, the last like two, three years of his life was sort of spent in that uh, descent. And having this in our family and having this happen to me, I, I realize I'm not alone. I realize there are hundreds of thousands of families that um, don't speak about it and don't uh, can't, you know, can't share it. And, and they, they take on this sort of guilt and shame about it. So much of it has to do with mental health. 
so much of it has to do with that. And the, you know, the last three years of his life, we tried a lot of rehab and a lot of programs and um, it never stuck with him. He was very, he was very stubborn. He was very kind of lost in in that way. And and so I've, I've always been hoping there would be in the future more, more different types of recovery options available out there. Dr. Vernig, can you talk about the importance of destigmatizing overdose deaths and highlighting the need for improved addiction treatment and prevention? Absolutely. So the the stigma that surrounds uh, death by things like uh, drug overdose or suicide is something that has been with us, uh, obviously, for a very long time. And we used to think that making the suggestion to someone that, you know, we're not going to share that publicly, it was about protecting the family. But in reality, it robbed them of the opportunity to share that information, to talk about their loved one. Now, obviously, when somebody loses somebody that they care about, it's their choice what they want to share, how they want to share it. But by communicating that to people, People, what we were doing was telling them that the way that their loved one died was wrong or shameful, and it was a secret that had to be kept. In addition to that, by not publicizing or not uh, sharing the fact that somebody died of an overdose, we're also hiding the importance of the issue in our society. We're uh, robbing people of the opportunity to know that their friend or their loved one or somebody in their social circle had died of suicide or had died of a drug overdose, which when we know somebody near us that experiences something, that helps us to understand and helps to uh, raise our awareness as well. Well, Melissa, your music has meant so much to so many people, certainly in my life. But I wonder if you can talk about how your music has served as a source of healing or expression for you in coping with your son's loss. Oh, it, it means everything. When he he died during the pandemic, and um, it was it was so difficult because you know we we couldn't do a funeral at the time, we couldn't do any kind of service, and. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we couldn't gather friends and everybody together. And I, I just started um, playing music. And I, I, my wife and I created a thing called Etheridge TV, where five days a week we, we would we would put on, you know, an hour show. We would I would either sing or we would do a little, you know, talk show or, or something. And, and the music just. 100% healed me and then the next year I got to you know tour and I started playing again and it's a very it's a sublime place that that I, I go to when I play and it's 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 pure joy and and to be able to reach that and 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 feel that and then write from that I haven't written a lot my um I'm actually in New York on Broadway right now and the Broadway show has his, it, it speaks about his death and the coming back from that. And so that's very healing for me. Mm. Tell us more about the Broadway show. It sounds mm-hmm. like it was an opportunity for you to really process a lot of your feelings, to be able to share a message that has a wider application to people who get to experience it. Yeah, it's 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 a fun show. It's it's music. It's it's my story. I do a lot of talking. The um it's not like a concert, even though I, I am performing in it. And I, I take people from my my growing up in Kansas to you know, Hollywood and the, you know, becoming a, a musician and a star and then family 
and then in the end, it it is about losing Beckett, but it's also about carrying on. It's about walking past that. It's about remembering him in a way that he would want me to. He would want me to be happy. He would not want me to yeah. uh, be covered in guilt and shame and and destroy my life because of of, of what he did. Tony, well, I mean, it, it's funny because it, it's it's kind of scary. It's such a parallel. Years ago, you know, you wrote music to, for me, was to try to create, to write what you would be considered a hit record. And when my son died, I have two other children. And for the first time, I truly understood what he felt. Because as much as I love with every fiber of my being, my other two children, all I wanted was the pain to stop. And I remember walking into the room to take my life because the pain just wouldn't go go away. And I passed the keyboard, and I remember sitting down. There's a picture of my son next to the keyboard, and I remembered all of the pain just kind of came out of me when I was playing and writing, and I was writing my pain on the piano. And mm. like you, it it saved me from ending my because if you haven't lost a child there's no way in the world I can explain to you that kind of pain that never ending nonstop kind of pain and you can't go around that pain which is why people self medicate you need to go through it and that's why music to me and music therapy and art therapy are so monumental that need to be incorporated in in recovery because it gives someone an outlet for them to let it out and get it out of their body. Because until you reach why they're self-medicating, it's a never-ending loop that never stops for them. Mm, yeah. Melissa, so many families face the stigma associated with addiction. And I know that you, you've been really an advocate for erasing that stigma. And I wonder if you can talk about steps that we can do to reduce the stigma and promote an open conversation about addiction and recovery? Well, more education on on the mental health aspect and and less on, oh, well, they weren't raised right or boy, if they had, you know, given them this or not given them that and oh, they're rich. And so they got in, you know, they got too much and all the sort of excuses blame. that they use and blame. Yeah. Yeah. The blaming that they use. If, if we can get past that and realize that a lot of families have mental health issues in them for just because they do not because there's anything wrong with the family structure, but just because this life is filled with that. And if we can have a start a conversation on just accepting that you know some members of some families have these issues and move forward and, and and not go backward in some sort of blame but move forward with other ways of of treating it yeah it seems like people still think about addiction or substance use issues as a personal character flaw right they they say oh if you we're strong enough or you did this, you could overcome it. They don't understand about the fact that it really is a disease. It's not a choice necessarily. Yeah, you like he said, it, it's a loop. There's a loop that just that happens and, and your beliefs 
get narrowed in your habits, you know, in, in the beliefs that come out of those habits. And you get so in, in, in such a pole that there's nothing that anybody can say to you. You have to have real alternatives to break, break those loops and create different neural paths and, and yes. create different habits and different beliefs. And sometimes the biggest culprit, believe it or not, is your own family and friends. Mm-hmm. See, I, the, the first step to changing the way people look at the stigma associated with mental health is to make sure your family understands. Like when my son died, the, there were friends and family members that came up to me were like, well, don't tell people how he died. Don't yeah. tell them that he OD'd because you don't want people to think. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why why wouldn't I? Like, the first step is that families have to understand that, that mental health is not a weakness, okay, and that addiction is not a choice. It is self-medicating uh, an issue that they're having trouble dealing with. But you, the family's got to be the first one to get on board because you can't expect the rest of the world to change if your own family and friends think that way. You have to just yeah. keep beating them up with the fact of, of, of proof that don't be ashamed. I talked to an elderly woman to put a picture of her daughter up. No one knew she died of an overdose. I said, you put that picture up on social media and you tell them that that was your loved one and you love them. There's nothing wrong with them. And they suffered and they lost a battle, but they fought it every single day. The strongest people in the world are people that are in recovery. They have more strength than most people I've ever met in my entire life. Yet they're treated as if they have no strength at all. Right. Dr. Vernig, many families face the stigma associated with addiction. What steps do you think can be taken to reduce this stigma and promote open conversations about addiction and recovery? Well, the question about stigma is very important because not only does it harm families, but it harms individuals who are in need of services. One of the main barriers for people with a substance use disorder or a mental illness to getting care, getting the support, getting the help that they need is fear of stigma, fear of blame, fear of the shame that comes with, unfortunately, living with one of these disorders in our society. We don't blame somebody for having hypertension or having cancer or any other illness. This is one of the only areas of healthcare where we blame the person for their illness. So in terms of your question about how we start to break that stigma down, really it's what you're doing, Tony. It's what, Melissa, you're doing, speaking out, talking about it. This is one of the most important things that we can do is we can show that it's not shameful. We can show that it's okay for us to talk about. It's okay to discuss when somebody is living with a substance use disorder. It's okay to talk about when somebody has a mental illness. This is a part of life. And there's no shame. It's not a character flaw. It's something that is out in the open or should be out in the open and something that millions and millions of Americans deal with every single day. Melissa, having and Tony, both of you have gone through a situation where you have a a child in addiction. And I think that's got to be one of the hardest thing a parent has to deal with, address. You, you, You feel like you want to save your child, you want to help your child, and sometimes you just don't know how. And I wonder if you have any advice, having gone through that journey with your son, what what is your advice to parents who may be concerned about their child's substance use addiction? Well, I think in in our society, in the Western world, there is this belief that it is the parent's responsibility for a child 
to have a happy childhood, that we are here to tell them all the rules. We are here to uh, train them to become good, good, outstanding, happy, productive people. And that's certainly what I thought before I had children. And once I had them, I realized, oh, my goodness, each one of these children is completely different. And they come into the world with their own perception and their own strengths and weaknesses. And it is their journey in this life is about them walking the steps and making the choices. And the best thing that I can do for them is, you know, feed and water them, of course. You know, they provide them those basic needs and love them unconditionally, not just I'm going to not not I'm going to love you under the condition of if you do everything that makes me happy, if you follow all my rules, then I'll love you. No, it's it's unconditionally love you. I love you the way you are, no matter what you're going through. So you, you, you've got that bottom line of love and then just be an example of, hey, I try to do this. I try to show my children that I, I love my work. It makes me happy. Sometimes it takes me away from them, but it makes me so happy to do what I love. And they can see that this is what a, a life looks like of finding your joy and pursuing it, you know, pursuing your desires and creating and it's and it's ongoing and it's up and down and and this is how you get through that. That's the best thing I can do is to be an example. I can't, I'm not here to to say you're supposed to go to school and get straight A's. You're supposed to go to college. Then you're supposed to get a job. Some people do do that. I have one child who's been very good at that. She's got her master's and she's all great. And then I have an artist and I have, you know, all different types. And if we can kind of change the, the sort of outlook on what a family is and what a parent's role is, then maybe we can start to uh, open up this world so people don't feel like they're a failure if they don't get a master's degree or, you know, something like that. Yeah, I love that. And uh, I, I get great comfort from uh, something that I heard a couple of years ago, and that is parents should take less blame and less credit for how their kids turn out, right? There you go. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I 100% agree with that. <laughs> Tony? I agree with her. My thing when I speak to people is that you need to always let your child know that you love them, okay? People tell me, well, then you're enabling them. There's a big difference between enabling someone who is suffering from addiction or supporting them. And I and I always tell them, they're like, well, they need to hit rock bottom and they need to be on the street. And I'm like, one size does not fit all for everyone. Your child needs to understand that you are there for them. But for me, there there are boundaries. There are boundaries that everyone has to live by. So my thing always was, when you want help, I'm here. If you don't want help, I can't force you into a recovery center. I can't force you into detox because all you'll do is run away and then it'll happen again. You got to want the help. So the only thing I can guarantee you is I will love you. 
I will feed you. I will give you whatever you need. You need clothing. You need this. I will give you those things. But I am not going to give you money to go out and support you doing something that is detrimental to your health and to your life. But I'm always here if you need me. But there needs to be boundaries that are put up because if not, no one, no one respects that. And she's right. Every person is different. What works for one person does, will not work for someone else. And as a parent, all you can do is love your children. That is paramount. I mean, there's nothing else. You can't live their life for them. Every one of us that walks the face of this earth has our own journey. We are born with a journey. It's the journey we have to walk. Our children have their own journey that we have to walk. We should help guide them when they want advice. We don't give it unless they want it. Okay, and the one thing that you said, Melissa, that hit home so much to me in the world was, don't preach it, live it. And you will do more by living it than you ever will by telling, ever will by telling someone. Dr. Vernig, uh, Melissa just talked about how parents, how parents can address the issue of their children's substance use or addiction issues. And I wonder, as from a perspective of a clinician, what advice would you give to parents in terms of how they can address a situation which oftentimes parents have no idea what to say or do. You know, Melissa, I think what you said is spot on, uh, that when we try to confront, when we try to push something, really what that does is it causes people to close down. It causes people to be more reactive and less open to talk. Making sure that your children know you are going to listen to them. You're not going to provide judgment. You're going to be someone that they can talk to. Normalizing for them that it's an okay conversation to have. If you're struggling, I want to hear about it. I don't only want to hear about it when things are going well. I want to hear about it when things are aren't and letting them know that they're going to have love and not face judgment regardless of what they bring to you. So not trying to force them into a certain course of action because treatment can look different for different people. There's no one right way to recover from a substance use disorder, just like there's no one right way to live a person's life. So being open, being uh, direct and always being available with a supportive ear, somebody to listen to uh, their concerns. Melissa, you you kind of touched on it already, but I still think it's worth revisiting the question about strength and resilience in the face of loss. What advice do you have for others dealing with the grief of losing someone mm-hmm. to substance use disorder? Well, I think everyone has their their own grief process, you know, and it's I mean, I had, you know, a process of great grief of of the loss and, you know, the memories and that sort of thing. And I have a, a strong spiritual practice and, and belief in the this physical world and the non-physical world. And death is does not mean death to the soul and the spirit. And that that energy still lives on. So I I get a lot of comfort from that and that he is in a place of no pain which uh, which comforts me because he was in so much pain i would try to really get someone to understand that any pain that you are feeling any guilt shame 
anger, fear, any of those things you're feeling that is causing you pain about that person who is gone, it does prolong, it serves a purpose in in the short term. Get get it out, but let it be once it's out and, and continue your life and your search for your own joy and happiness because your loved one would want that for you. They would not want you to stop your life. And your your grieving over and over and, and is going to ultimately make you sick. And it's going to take you away from your other loved ones. So it's letting yourself off the hook. It's a it's a self-forgiveness and then ultimately finding peace somehow. Somehow with peace with the loss, peace with with yourself and, and knowing you did the best you could. I did the best I could. And being able to then to walk every day with that and get the momentum of, of joy and, and, and happiness back in your life. Yeah. That was so on point. You know, she makes a, a great point. I, I just want to touch on quickly. There's a big difference between suffering and pain. Mm. Pain you can live with. Suffering you cannot. And what Melissa just hit on, which was so incredible, and I want to emphasize it, is that when you understand the lesson, your own lesson, from whatever tragedy happens in your life, when you can find the lesson in that tragedy to whether you, it's it's always an inner journey. Peace and happiness is a choice that you make. We can choose to suffer. We can choose to be unhappy. We can choose to be miserable. And it's okay to feel your feelings and go to that place. Like there's times for three days I won't get off the couch. I won't shower. I won't bathe. I won't brush my, I won't do anything. And I don't punish myself for it because it's okay for me to go there. I just can't live there. And you understand you can't live there. But that's the point when you, when you, if you want the peace, you got to surrender to what the lesson is in the tragedy of yourself and understand it. And then the pain you can manage because you never get over the loss of a child. You never wake up and go up. Oh, but there's times I wake up. There's my son's picture. I laugh. I talk to him. His pictures in my studio. I go, do you like this song? What do you think? Do you, do you think this is good? I never thought I would get to a place like that. But in order to do that, you've got to put it down. You've got to let it down. You've got to stop blaming yourself like like Melissa was just talking about. You have to stop blaming yourself and understand that none of us are perfect. We do the best that we can in the moment that we are doing it. And you have to let that down. Carrying that weight will kill you. Melissa talked about her recovery from heartbreak. And I wonder if you could jump in and also give some advice on what resources or what avenues people could look at in terms of being able to address their own heartbreaking loss. So in coping with loss, one of the most important things to remember is that for no two people is there uh, the exact same way of going through it. So, you know, everybody may feel things that are similar, but the way through may be different for those two people. One important component is the ability to express oneself. So that can be talking to a friend or family member or to a spiritual support or a therapist. As Tony talked about, expressing oneself through music and art. Uh, Sometimes something as simple as expressing oneself 
oneself to themselves by journaling. Uh, you know, there's many different ways that a person can get those feelings out. But ultimately, uh, getting through is oftentimes about processing. It's about the ability to think about and to feel those feelings and to not avoid, to not run from those feelings either. So, uh, you know, as we talked about avoidance being a big part of substance use uh, itself. So being able to get through loss, being able to process loss with others, with oneself and having people around them, being surrounded by a support system who is there ready to help when a person needs it, knowing that, you know, you may say to somebody, I may not need you right now, but I might need you in the future. So just know that if I reach out to you, this is what I need. This is how you can help me. And you know what? Maybe you're never going to reach out to them because maybe that's not what you need in the moment, but maybe you are going to. So having those social supports is a a big part of recovery. Well, Melissa, you have such great advice, which is a lot of it is self-forgiveness and feel your feelings. I mean, when you have a loss that deep and as someone who has not lost a child, it's probably one of my biggest fears. But again, you know, the process is is organic. You you have to let you you have to feel your feelings, but also get some help. Right. I mean, there are people out there that you can talk to that can help you process those feelings. Therapy is a good thing, right? Yeah. Talking about it, getting through it. But again, not talking about it forever, because then you you, you get stuck in a, a loop of that. It now becomes your journey your path, you know, what, what are you going to do now? And, and what story are you going to tell? Life is filled with loss. There's going to be loss. It's just going to happen. That's, it's the duality of the universe we live in. And yes, there are a lot of people that you can go talk to that, that have experienced it and can help. There's a lot of options. Yeah. And plus, I I think you also uh, exemplify the power of art and music to heal and and Tony talked about it too art therapy music therapy as a musician you have the gift of being able to utilize that but you know even someone like me who has no talent whatsoever in music could probably benefit from from that kind of therapy i think there's something about art and music therapy that really transcends just even talking about your feelings right yeah because when you have to remember if you're writing a poem or you're writing a song or you're writing music or a painting or a sketch, sometimes if you're afraid to let people in and you don't want them to judge you, you create something and then it's almost like, well, this is how I feel, but that's not me. It almost gives you a way to open up being anonymous to that part of you. And then once you see that and you let that out, you know that it's okay to be flawed. We're all flawed. Every single one of us are flawed. And every single one of us has a gift. We're all born with a gift. But sometimes life kind of squishes us, tells us that we have to be put in a certain box and we can't do this and we can't do that. And we let our mind take control instead of our soul which is the one that is really in charge. The soul is watching this, what I call the life experience that we're living. We allow the mind to take over and the mind creates all these scenarios, which leads us down a very dark path. I think for me, and I can only speak for me, I found my strength in getting it out. And the way I got it out was through, through music. So I think that, There needs to be an outlet 
to push through the issue. The, the, the whole idea of addiction is that we're going around the issue. So we're self-medicating around the problem. And that's where the loop comes in. Well, people might, the biggest question I'm always asked is, well, how could someone be in recovery for three years and then not be? How could they fall from that? And I go, because when willpower and the support system, which is helping your willpower, breaks down for some reason in the perfect storm, we resort back to the one thing that we know will ease our pain because the system is set up to support a willpower of you not wanting to use when the system should be set up from the mental health perspective to go through it because once you go through it, the chances of you ever falling back are reduced by a thousand percent because now you're not self-medicating a problem anymore. You're not, when people say, well, they're getting high. No, when I was younger, I drank, I did drugs, I got high, I was a kid, I enjoyed it. People that are suffering from addiction and recovery are never getting high. They are self-medicating. There is a big, big difference. So I like to put Dr. Vernig on the spot for a minute if I can. Oh, of course. <laughs> After listening to this interview, and I know you come from the mental health perspective, Please, I hope that we have converted you in one way that maybe we can we can rely on you as being an advocate now to recovery centers to make it a very big priority to add music and art as part of the therapy in all of these centers so that there is an outlet because music is a universal language. Whether you're a musician or you're not, music is energy, it's vibrations. Those vibrations make you feel good or feel anxious or feel bad. If you notice, tones and frequencies have a big mood swing on our brain, the way it interprets that. I'm hoping that during this show, we have maybe brought in another soldier that can be a true advocate when when you sit down with these centers and you put programs together and go, I think it's very important that we implement a music program, an art program for another outlet for people that want to use it. Just another tool in the box that you're using already. Tony, you don't have to convert me. I am already there. I've worked with music and art and dance movement therapists throughout my career and seen how uh, it enables people to express themselves, to communicate, to find ways other than words to express what they're feeling. One of the things that you said that I think is, is so important is how people need to communicate their pain. People need to be able to talk about it. But for some people talking about it using words, they may not be ready to do that. That may be difficult for them. And so finding a different way of expressing expressing that. For some, it's creating music or art. For some people, it's just listening to that music and being able to see how that resonates with them, how that speaks to them as a person. All of that is is critical and can be such an important part of recovery. And what you said about mental health also, I think, is uh, important to, to kind of highlight as well. The fact that underlying substance use for so many people is that pain of depression, of anxiety, of trauma that they've experienced. For so many people, they're chasing 
using the substance not to get high, as you said, but to self-medicate. They don't want to feel, and it is a disease for them of avoidance, uh, avoiding the feelings that they're feeling, avoiding the thoughts that they're experiencing, avoiding the memories that they don't want to have. And that is uh, such a common route into substance use disorder for so many millions of people. Melissa, I know that you've got a very busy schedule, and we are so grateful for the time that you've allotted to speak with us. But before we let you go, we'd like you to share information about your Etheridge Foundation. Tell us about that. Well, the Etheridge Foundation, I I put my wife and I put together after my son's death. We've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to put toward research, towards different options to opioid use and to help with opioid use disorder. We specialize in plant medicines, in uh, psychedelics, actually. There's a lot of interest and work going on there. So we we put the money toward collecting the data, doing the research so that we can pass the laws that make these options available. If people would like more information about the Etheridge Foundation, how do they get in touch? It's etheridgefoundation.org. You can donate. You can read about it. There's many ways to be of help. Fantastic. And Pete, if people would like to know more information about Recovery Centers of America, where do they go? Anyone interested in learning more about Recovery Centers of America can go to our website at recoverycentersofamerica.com or call our mission center at 1-800-RECOVERY. We have staff 24-7 who will uh, listen to you uh, if you want to call about your own struggles. If you have a family member who uh, may need some support, give us a call and we'll have staff standing by to help. Melissa Etheridge, singer and songwriter, Grammy Award winner, Advocate for raising awareness about substance use disorder, reducing stigma, and promoting access to treatment and support. We are so grateful that you've spent the time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much. And much love to you, Tony. Much love to you as well. Thank you so much for doing this. I know how incredibly busy you are, but your voice holds a lot of weight and more voices need to come together. And you have my gratitude for forever for today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Blessings to you all. Thank you. God God bless bless you. Recovery 360 isn't just about stories of survival from substance use disorder. It's a resource for those seeking answers, support, and hope. Whether you're personally navigating the challenging terrain of recovery or you're here to learn how to be a better ally, this podcast is a source of information, inspiration, and empowerment. Thanks to Dr. Peter Vernick, Vice President of Mental Health Services at Recovery Centers of America and Grammy Award-winning singer and songwriter Melissa Etheridge and advocate for raising awareness about substance use disorder, reducing stigma and promoting access to treatment and support. We will see you next time. I'm Lorraine Ballard-Morrill. And I'm Tony Luke Jr. 